morning and welcome to Rising. Good morning, Brianna. Good morning, Robbie. So we've got a great show for you today. I'm going to have a discussion with Judd Legum on his reporting that I characterized as a smear on the Coke Charitable Network, uh, which he described their uh, stance on sanctions in a way I didn't like. So we're going to hash it out. That'll be fun. Also, Emily Jashinsky will weigh in on the debate about the return of pandemic restrictions. And Trita Parsi will explain why non-Western countries tend to see Russia's war very differently than we do here in the U.S. But first, we want to bring some updates to you on the subway shooting in New York yesterday. Last night, authorities identified 62-year-old Frank R. James as a person of interest in the investigation. Law enforcement officials said they were able to get an image of the suspect from a bystander's cell phone video. The attack at the 26th Street station in Brooklyn left at least 29 people shot at or injured after a gunman threw smoke bombs into a subway car and began shooting at the height of the morning rush hour. Thankfully, none of the injuries were considered life-threatening. So far, the situation is not being investigated as an act of terrorism. New York Mayor Eric Adams has pledged to double the number of police officers in the city's subway system. In the wake of the shooting, he also said that new technology will be introduced at subway stations after the cameras at the 36th Street station were reported to be inoperable. Public defender at the Legal Aid Society and friend of the show, Alimia Lurin, tweeted that before adding a more robust police presence, there are already 3,500 police in New York City's subways all the time, drawing a disconnect between police and public safety. She joins us now to discuss further. Welcome back, Alimi. Morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're so pleased to have your expertise this morning. So what do you make of this plan? You know, every time there's a, there's a, a horrible tragedy like this, people want, they want solutions. What will be done so that this can never happen again? And, you know, this is a golden opportunity for policymakers to throw out every idea or ideas they already wanted in some cases, ideas they know are impractical. What do you make of this? The problem is, as anticipated, we knew Eric Adams would use this as an opportunity to ask for more police in the subways, when in fact, this is an abject reflection of police failure. Not only do we already put $10.4 billion into NYPD, not only do we have 35,000 officers, but we have 3,500 officers committed to the subways alone, and Eric Adams recently added 1,000 more. And yet, they weren't able to see this incident coming, prevent this incident, even get a proper description. In fact, it was everyday New Yorkers that were helping people who had been shot on the platform. It was everyday New Yorkers who caught bystander video to even give them a description. What did they do here? This is a failure. So instead of saying, oh, we want to double the amount of police presence we have in the subways, you need to explain what the 3,500 officers you have were doing. Why didn't the cameras work? Why didn't their phones work? It went as far as everyday New Yorkers were told by the police officers that were present on the platform because there were police there that failed to do something. Those police told them, can you call 911? Our radios don't work. All of the video cameras and the security footage that we paid billions of dollars to be there for didn't work. There was just no evidence that NYPD could find. And yet everyday civilians or who had to help the people who had been shot, who had to help the police come up with suspects. And that is a policing failure, not a call to get more police. Yeah. What do you make of people who have really tried to highlight the spike in transit crimes in this moment? And what do you think the relationship is between that spike in transit crimes and the increased number of people in the police, uh, police in the actual subways at the moment? What's going on there? Is it that more folks are being picked up who are turnstile jumpers and doing those other kinds of misdemeanors? Or is there a broader kind of increase in crime in the city that's happening at the same time? 
What the police have been doing in the subway stations, as many New Yorkers could tell you, is they harass the homeless people, people who have mental health issues, and they harass people jumping the turnstile. But they're not there being vigilant, looking out for crime. They're standing in huddles, maskless on their cell phones, and they're not doing anything. So I would say the reflection on, on a spike in crime in the transit has everything to do with the increased police presence harassing particular groups of people, but not actually doing anything to prevent serious crime. Yeah, I we I might be coming at this from slightly different angle. I would support having the transit police uh, remove more irate, violent, mentally ill people from the subway system. There, but there are clearly enough cops to do that already. They are not doing that, uh, probably because I don't know. There's no accountability. They don't have to. And so the last thing on earth I would commit to is giving you know the city more resources in this area. They already yes. clearly have enough and they're not solving the problem. So why would we think they would solve the problem if we give them more of what they want? Exactly. New York City's police department for this one single city is better funded than many countries military. And that's insane. And if you see that's happening and yet all you see from New York City in our media 24-7 every day is crime, 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 is that crime is rising, that we have all these issues with crime. So if we put more money into our police department, we hire more police than anywhere else, why is this not the safest place? So clearly there must be a disconnect between police presence and public safety. It's only obvious now. Yeah, I saw that stat that if, if it were a military, it would be, what, the 24th biggest military in the world? Yes, <laughs> well, yes. Even before this shooting, violent crimes on New York subways have spiked 50 percent in the last 12 months, with nearly 500 major crimes reported this year. Hammer attacks, feces smearing, and uh, fatal pushes on the subway tracks were just some of those charges. This spike in violence is uh, plaguing the city. Uh, people are concerned, as well as the subway system. Nearly 60% of New York voters agree that their families would be better off somewhere else, according to recent polling. President Biden delivered remarks on the shooting. Let's watch. We're grateful for all the first responders who jumped into action, including civilians, civilians who didn't hesitate to help their fellow passengers and try to shield them. My team has been in touch with Mayor Adams and New York's police commissioner. And the Department of Justice and the FBI are working closely with the NYPD on the ground. We're going to continue to stay in close contact with New York authorities and as we learn more about the situation over the coming hours and days. So we share pretty similar politics when it comes to these criminal justice issues. But I do feel from a messaging perspective, sometimes the left is reluctant to acknowledge that people do have a sincere concern about crime. It's part of how Eric Adams got elected in the first place. How would you approach someone who says, look, I don't like these, these numbers. I feel unsafe increasingly in the city I, and, and direct them toward, let's say, a progressive response instead of a kind of carceral response? Well, I want to say that the left has the same concern for crime. We just are interested in rooting out crime and actually the causes of crime rather than just continuing the same failed efforts. I would say, well, first of all, New York City, despite the fact that we have a rise in crime, we're still much safer statistically than many of these major cities. They're doing the raw data. Uh, they're, they're doing the percentages as opposed to the raw data. So yes, there's a spike. But we also have to remember New York City only recently opened up. We were in a pandemic for two years. We're one of the most expensive places, actually probably the most expensive city 
in the country. We dealt with extreme closures. People are still out of work. We have uh, eviction moratoriums that were lifted. There are many, many objective reasons why there's crime rising in New York City. It's because poverty is rising in New York City. We mm -hmm. had a pandemic. We have all kinds of serious issues. But instead of putting the money there, what you've seen happen is we've increased police presence. We've increased the budget for police. We've increased uh, the amount of police that we've hired and have them everywhere. We've cut money on education, on homeless services, and just about everything else, including healthcare. So that's why I would say that instead of continuing to funnel $11 billion into NYPD, who've shown us repeatedly that they're not going to be able to stop crime, that they can't bring it down. And in fact, that they can't even give us answers to the crimes that they were supposed to be able to witness when they are physically there. Instead of doing that, we need to put money into these other areas in New York City, and that will deal with these issues that New Yorkers are facing leading to crime. Yeah, Eric Adams was asked about, uh, by someone in the media, I think, well, what about putting you know metal detectors in all the stations? And he said, oh, yeah, well, we can explore that. <laughs> Wildly impractical idea that would just make commuting even more right. uh, time consuming. They would cost a ton. Would not, right. like, let's be honest, would not do an iota of, of positive uh, effects on, on keeping crime out of the subway, but right. would, you know, would just make everyone's lives more difficult. Which is the bring great bring TSA style security right. to the subway. Right. Yeah, that'll that that'd be just wonderful. And instead of metal detectors or proposing different uh, different methods, he needs to explain why the existing methods that we pay for did not and do not work. Why don't the cameras work? We have security footage all throughout the subway stations for a reason. It's supposed to be there for exactly incidents like this. So why didn't it work? Why didn't they have that? Why didn't the police have a description? Why didn't the police even see this guy? Why weren't they able to stop him? And why did they have no footage of any kind of their own that they could rely on? Why were bystanders responsible for performing the medical care, for calling 911, and for finding the suspect? Yeah. Yeah. And with a, Pretty huge, bad. a huge percentage of the police budget actually going to patrol hours, I would like to see, if anything, at least defunding patrols and refunding the camera operators. Something's <laughs> got to happen. Whoever the tech people are, they're at least making the cameras work. It seems like it would be a better uh, source of money, even if people are reluctant to defund the police department as a whole. You made a really great case for doing that, though, today, and I appreciate you coming on to discuss. Thank you. Then we'll tell you what's on our radars next. What's on your radar, Robbie? Well, Robert Reich is a former U.S. Secretary of Labor, having served under Bill Clinton from 1993 to 1997. He has taught public policy at UC Berkeley since 2006 and is generally one of the most influential progressive economic writers and commentators alive today. Many of Rising's viewers probably have a great deal of esteem for his opinions, Medicare for all, universal basic income, etc. But he attracted a lot of attention on social media yesterday for writing what I think is a particularly awful column that I think deserves a thorough debunking as it points to serious issues I have with progressive thinking. The article was titled, quote, Elon Musk's vision for the Internet is dangerous nonsense, and it ran in The Guardian. So Reich begins by condemning Vladimir Putin's authoritarianism, particularly how he hides the truth from the people of Russia by outlawing dissent, jailing protesters, prioritizing government propaganda over independent media, and so on. Uh, Reich then turns his attention to former President Donald Trump and says that the decisions by social media companies to ban the president were, quote, necessary to protect American democracy. But wait a minute, why does silencing one political viewpoint protect democracy? How is that any different than Putin saying his silencing of dissenters, for instance, is necessary to protect Russia? Reich doesn't seem to realize that he is condemning one kind of tyranny while lionizing another. 
which leads him into a very, very odd attack on Tesla CEO Elon Musk, who recently became the largest shareholder of Twitter after buying a 9% stake in the company. Musk was offered a spot on the board, but has declined it for reasons that aren't clear. We'll hopefully be learning more about that. But Musk has also expressed misgivings about Twitter's treatment of dissenting views on the platform. He's worried that social media, the social media site, which serves a very important function as a place of discussion and debate among the political and journalistic classes, is increasingly unfriendly to free speech. Now, it's important to be clear that when we're talking about free speech in the Twitter context, we're talking about the principle of free speech, not free speech under the terms of the First Amendment, because social media sites are private companies and the First Amendment protects their right actually to set whatever moderation policies they want. So the First Amendment is not and cannot be cited as a defense by anyone who is shadow banned or deplatformed, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, anywhere else. What we possess under the First Amendment is a right to criticize that bad behavior among those private corporations, to call out hypocrisy, to protest that singling out dissenting political speech for special punishment is a bad way to run an online platform. That's what I think. That's what Musk thinks. That's what many independent voices on both the left and the right have come to think. But not Robert Reich, apparently. He writes, quote, Will Musk use his clout to let Trump back on? I fear he will. Musk has, a long, Musk has long advocated a libertarian vision of an uncontrolled Internet. That vision is dangerous rubbish. There's no such animal. There never will be. In Musk's vision of Twitter and the Internet, he'd be the wizard behind the curtain, projecting on the world screen a fake image of, brave, of a brave new world empowering everyone. In reality, that world would be dominated by the richest and most powerful people in the world who wouldn't be accountable to anyone for facts, truth, science, or the common good. That's Musk's dream, and Trump's, and Putin's, and the dream of every dictator, strongman, demagogue, modern-day robber baron on Earth. For the rest of us, it would be a brave new nightmare. End quote. So Reich, unfortunately, is deeply confused here. The libertarian vision of an uncontrolled Internet is not the dream of dictators. Dictators want a controlled Internet. Dictators like Putin want a controlled Internet. What Reich is advocating is a controlled Internet, and he likes the people who currently control it, I guess. The sort of progressive-minded moderators who don't want people to read about the Black Lives Matter Foundation spending their millions to buy up real estate rather than promote change, or about Hunter Biden's misdeeds. All of these things were hidden on Facebook, for instance, and an internet where Facebook hides the truth from users. Now that is a controlled internet. It's just one controlled by people Reich approves of. Musk appears to want something entirely different, a social media site where the gatekeepers don't try to suppress information. Instead, they let the users decide what to think and what to believe. Under this vision, people will frequently encounter information that is wrong. That's true but they will also be free to judge for themselves. We'd run less risk as a society of having a truth vigorously suppressed from public discussion because it embarrasses someone in power. Recall that for months, for months, Facebook refused to allow users to talk about the lab leak theory on the platform. Now that policy has changed as the lab leak theory has enough mainstream credibility and plausibility that even they can't deny it. That's the risk. We blind ourselves to the truth when we try that vigorously to stamp out lies. Reich is not alone in preferring things the way they are currently. Ellen K. Powell, the former CEO of Reddit, wrote in an op-ed for the Washington Post that Elon Musk's vision of free speech will be bad for Twitter. It will be bad for Twitter, she writes, because Musk wants to let more people speak on Twitter without fear of censorship. Progressives like Reich and like Powell should just admit they don't like free speech. They must not frame their dismissal of the concept as a sort of rejection of tyranny. It's the opposite. It's an embrace of tyranny of a kind of tyranny that is popular in both Russia and China, the U.S.'s main political, social, and economic rivals. Russia and China don't want their citizens saying whatever they want on social media. Elon Musk does. 
That's the difference between an uncontrolled libertarian ethos for the internet and the ethos of the censors. So this, uh, this piece that he wrote for The Guardian was getting a lot of criticism mm. on Twitter because I don't really care for Robert Reich anyway. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't go in thinking this is going to be any worse than what I usually read for him, from him, but it actually was worse. Uh, weirdly comparing Elon Musk to like Putin, but they do, they, they do or they want opposite things. Putin does command dictatorial control over the internet in Russia, and we all think that's bad, or pretty much everyone thinks that's bad. And Elon Musk is saying that's bad, and it, I, I don't get it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. There is a pretty significant blind spot among liberals and, and some leftists. I mean, Reich occupies this kind of liminal zone between the broad Bernie left, who does advocate for these social policies that are enormously popular, and a more, I would say, true leftist cohort that would agree with you. And mm -hmm. that agrees with you in part because we have been the subject of so much of the censorship that has come under the more liberal uh, Mark Zuckerberg-y, uh, Ellen mm -hmm. Powell regimes. So it is frustrating for him not to see the hypocrisy there. It's also a little odd because when I clicked on the article, I presumed he was going to be concerned that Elon Musk was going to be censoring the internet along the lines that would be in the interests of Elon Musk and all of the sure, corporate. Right, and then right. I was, I was going to obviously agree. And this was an interesting take. But I, I, I do appreciate that we're having this conversation in a bipartisan way now because so many folks on the left are now having really substantive conversations about joining Rumble and joining Rockfin mm -hmm. because the shadow banning has gotten so insane, because the various people who have been pulled off the internet, the RT ban, even this show right. was pulled off the internet right. we recently. We had our trouble with YouTube, yeah. Right, and people... Their livelihoods depend on these kinds of things. There's no stability. And, of course, the substantive news value is the most important thing at issue here. So I, I can't disagree with you on this one, i got to say. Oh, oh, good to hear. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, don't, I, I take umbrage every time like libertarian is used pejoratively because I self-describe that way very obviously. Whatever. You can have disagreements with libertarianism, but don't describe like like a controlled internet as, as or a, like he was saying an uncontrolled internet, but what he actually meant was a controlled internet as libertarian. Like, no, we're not, I'm not for this. And just because I don't think there are great government solutions on the table doesn't mean I'm satisfied with every sure. moderation policy that comes out of social media. You know, if there was a really good idea for here's what the government regulation would be to solve a lot of our free speech concerns on social media, I would listen. Yeah. I would I would be willing to consider it, but no one has really proposed that thing. And a lot of the things that is Section 230 reform, just breaking up the companies, they're satisfying if your only goal is to like punish and destroy and and you know just break these things. I want to create I, I want to make the landscape for speech better on these platforms. And yeah. I don't really see I, I see like there's a step one and then a step three and the step two doesn't yeah, no, and a lot of the Section 230 reforms, a lot of the reforms that say we'll treat the the hosts as um, as moderators, as editors, and make them responsible for the editorial content of the of the site, really ignores how that disproportionately benefits big sites yes. that have the financial backing to be able to process all of the information. If you're Facebook, if you're Twitter, then perhaps you can hire enough people to do the kind of moderation that would shield you from liability. If you're a smaller provider and you're responsible for every comment and every like and everything, 
you're going to go insane. down. That'd you're going to get sued and you're going to go down, and that is going to limit the capacity or, or limit the avenues for speech on the internet, which is not which, which is not the goal. Which is why, in fact, that Facebook supports that very reform. Twitter does not support it because they hire currently fewer moderators mm. than Facebook. Facebook mm. has an army of moderators. They're like, yeah, make everyone responsible for speech. We'll yeah. kill our competitors. Yeah, yeah. So. I think it's largely also just Trump derangement syndrome. The, yeah. the Trump oh. cancellation off TBS. Twitter, I think, just messed with a lot of people's minds because they, they could not get themselves to oppose it just because of uh, Trump bad. And I get it. You know, Trump Trump bad. Trump bad. <laughs> Cheeto Hitler, et cetera. But you've got to be able to think a little bit more broadly than that. I, uh, I, can, I can always diagnose uh, TDS immediately if someone refers to Trump as Drumpf. Instead, that's the easy. That's Are the, people still doing that? That's the spot check for like for COVID. Do you have a temperature? Do you have a? Have you lost taste and smell? It's, did you call him Drumpf? Yeah, TDS. Well, they they say they say in the legal profession, um, hard cases make bad law, and I kind of feel like that's going on with Donald Trump. And I hope people figure out a way. I, I do think there's probably a category of you know problem of misinformation, mm-hmm. if you will. Even that term is so loaded these days so loaded. Um, that we would have to come up with some way to address. But every instance that we've seen so far have not really um, weighted the scales to a place where I would be willing to restrict speech in any respect for what? Right. Hunter Biden's laptop? Lab leak theory. Right. You know, show me the instance where we feel really good about the censorship that we've right, done. Right, they're just and embarrassing open... in hindsight. They're horribly right. embarrassing in right. hindsight that they made those calls. Right. So. But I'm looking forward to your radar coming up next. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, yesterday, as the story of a shooting event on the New York subway system broke, we at Rising wondered how quickly the crisis would go from a generalized tragedy into a politicized event. As it turns out, we didn't need to wait long. New York Mayor Eric Adams characterized the shooting event, which left at least 26 people injured and thankfully no fatalities, as part and parcel of a, quote, cult of death that has taken hold in this nation, a cult that allows innocents to be sacrificed on a daily basis. He vowed to, quote, continue to dam the rivers that feed the sea of violence. How? Well, by doubling the number of police officers traditionally patrolling the system. But as many criminal justice reform advocates have pointed out, increasing the police force has not resulted in lower crime rates. In fact, in an interview conducted yesterday by Dana Bash on CNN, Adams seemed to struggle to explain why, despite branding himself as a former cop, tough-on-crime mayor who had the unique ability to address subway violence, Transit crimes are up. I'm sure there are people in New York who say, wait a minute, I voted for a former cop to try to stop this, and it seems to be getting worse. What's your message to them? Uh, New Yorkers know every day I wake up to protect the city, and uh, they have trust in me as their mayor, and I have trust in the professionals that are carrying out the job of ensuring that our city is safe. And they're doing that every day. They're putting their lives on the line, Uh, to remove dangerous people off our streets and dangerous weapons um, off our streets. And we know we're going to get crime under control. And the problems we're facing is a problem that is hitting our entire uh, nation right now. And that is why this is a national uh, response. We need a national response to this issue. We're going to do our job every day. As I indicated, 1,800 guns. Think about that in New York City. That's uh, when you think about only uh, three and a half months removing 1,800 guns. We're going to continue to do our job, but there is some assistance that's going to be needed uh, in our city, such as uh, empowering uh, ATF, uh, bringing the ATF leader, as the president announced yesterday, uh, making ghost guns illegal 
Uh, there's so many things that we could do to assist the cities across America, particularly New York City, uh, to make sure that we're a safe place for our residents. Now, if you think you missed an answer to Bash's question about why Adams has not managed to bring crime down in New York, you're not alone. That wasn't an answer, just vibes. Nothing Adams said in that response has any bearing on yesterday's crime. Nominating a new director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms has little to no bearing on New York's subway crime rates. And there's no evidence at this time that a ghost gun, which is a gun with filed off serial numbers, was used in the attack. Nothing he said there, nothing addresses Dana's question about why New York's chief cop has overseen a rise in transit crimes, a jump of nearly 73%, despite a new anti-transit crime initiative, increased police funding last year, and calls for an even larger police budget by Eric Adams. But criminal justice advocates have a more satisfying explanation. More cops in subways may mean more turnstile jumpers in Rikers prison, but there is no correlation between increased police spending and increased public safety. According to reporting, reporting by Cleo Chang in New York Magazine, quote, the result of Eric Adams flooding the subway with cops to crack down on violent crime is 350 fair evasion arrests, 17,000 summons for misdemeanor crimes, and, of course, a mass shooting and bombing plan, an actual violent crime that cops did nothing to prevent. New York public defender and criminal justice commentator Olayami Olarin, who we spoke to this morning about the shooting response, noted that Eric Adams is already using the Brooklyn subway shooting to call for more cops in the subways when he should be explaining to us why none of the multiple police officers that were in the station were able to prevent the incident, stop the shooter, or even get a proper description. Other New Yorkers offered pictures of what the New York police presence often looks like. Adults on their phones, standing around, collecting salaries while doing little, if anything, to catch people who have committed acts of violence. And nothing at all to address the underlying causes of crime. This is why it's hard to get away from defund as a political project. Every time there is an incident like this, there are calls to fund the police more, despite there being no relationship between increased funding and lower crime. The 2020 police budget in New York was already $11 billion, or 10% of the budget, with the largest share of that being spent on street patrol. Only two other city agencies, the Department of Education and the Department of Social Services, cost more. And police funding would outstrip DSS, but for $4.4 billion in Medicaid payments issued by that agency. And other cities have even more disproportionate funding of police as compared to social services. A full one-third of LA's budget goes to the police force. Oakland PD receives, receives nearly half of the city's discretionary spending, more than every other expenditure, including human services, parks and recreation, and transportation combined. And 39% of Chicago's 2017 budget went to police. Even the most ardent lover of police might question these funding priorities. At this point, the conversation shouldn't be about whether or not you support the defund movement in the abstract. It should be whether these agencies should be held accountable for failing to use public funds to fulfill their fundamental mission to keep us safe. The answer, obviously, is that it's failing in that mission. So why do we keep throwing money at this problem, hoping for a different result? Lawyer and author of Becoming Abolitionist, Derricka Purnell, opined yesterday on why police are the only profession who do their jobs badly and get more funding and legitimacy. It's a good question. Police are being put to an impossible task, to be the backstop for a crumbling social safety net and economic system that has become a breeding ground for antisocial behavior. 
The answer isn't to throw more officers at the problem, putting them in situations for which they are not trained and in which they are not supported. The answer is to fund programs that have a demonstrated effect on lowering crime. Three out of every five state prisoners and sentenced jail inmates have a substance abuse problem. Half of state and federal prisoners and two-thirds of jail inmates are in serious psychological distress or have a history of mental illness. Now, we don't know much about the perpetrator of yesterday's shooting, but to the extent that it's already been being used as a justification to increase police funding, I feel comfortable saying this. If you really care about lowering crime, we could start by offering health care rather than throwing even more money at the police. Now, I know this is a little spicy, a little controversial, and there are a lot of people who feel very strongly about the defund movement. But what I, I just want to say is that regardless of how you feel about the valence of the movement or the politics behind the movement, it's really hard to me to argue with the idea that a moment like this shouldn't justify even more funding for programs that don't seem to be working. As a libertarian, I feel like you're going to be on this bandwagon. Yeah, no, this is going to be an agreeable couple of <laughs> radars today. It never makes sense. Look, this kind of thing, this horrible tragedy. Yeah. But this is the hardest kind of thing to prevent. Something that is, look, mass shootings are actually pretty rare. Yeah. They get a lot of media coverage. They suck us into like weeks long coverage, especially school shootings, that kind of thing. But they're the equivalent of like lightning strikes. How yeah. do you prevent them? It's, it's very hard to change public policy at the margins, right? We have a gun problem. We have a violence problem. We have all those things. But this kind of incident is actually not representative of the kind of violence problem we have. So even though everyone wants answers, what can be done about this? The answer is, well, frankly, nothing. R very little, probably. So, uh, so I agree with you. And in general, with the, the kind of you know, defund stuff, look, I, I think having more police roaming the streets would probably reduce crime if we like hired a bunch more cops to do it. But we see that. But it. they're not going to do it, so it's not worth like it's like we you saw those those pictures of what the police do on In, the subway. Indeed. They don't they don't they don't uh, remove more violent or mentally ill people. They just arrest more people for fare evasion, which is not the problem we're actually concerned about. Exactly. So it, having a more robust police presence and investing more money into these is in some sense just investing more money in government services and government employees, which as a libertarian, <laughs> I know, does not yield these wonderful, beautiful results we, we would like them to, to, to and, yield. And I'd say let's just shift it to a different agency that does have those kind of demonstrated results, but that's the subject for another rising fair, segment. Fair enough. <laughs> well, we've got our rising panel coming up next. Stay with us. Remember this? Let's just say there's a vaccine that is approved and even distributed before the election. Would you get it? Well, I think that's going to be an issue for all of us. Um, I will say that I would not trust Donald Trump. And it would have to be a credible source of information that talks about the, um, the efficacy and the, and the reliability of whatever he's talking about. I will not take his word for it. He wants us to inject bleach. I, no, I will not take his word. And would you take it? If the public health professionals, if Dr. Fauci, if the doctors tell us that we should take it, I'll be the first in line to take it. Absolutely. But if Donald Trump tells us I should that we should take it, I'm not taking it. Vice President Kamala Harris and her past public speculation over the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine came back into play yesterday during a heated debate between the co-hosts of The View about the return of pandemic restrictions. Let's watch. 
Trump poisoned the well from the beginning, right. refused to listen to the science, and so a lot of people, probably maybe in the millions, mm -hmm. uh, still never have gotten vaccinated. Right. And that's where this all started. So you can blame the Rose Gardner, you can blame Nancy Pelosi, but she didn't start this war. Oh, no, and I've been, I have yeah. been a very outspoken Republican that everyone should get vaccinated, they should get boosted. As soon as I can get a fourth booster, I'm going to get it. Mm -hmm. But I will say this, there were things that were said by Democrats early on that politicized the virus. Like it what? The fact that like Vice what? President Harris Give said, I'm what? not going to. Vice President Harris said you in the report of the administration that politicized she, the virus. Oh, I under and I take responsibility. Donald Trump you politicized must. the hell out of this virus. But Vice President Kamala Harris in the vice presidential debate said, I, "If Dr. Fauci says I should get it, I will." But I'm not getting a Trump vaccine. That's dangerous. That Who leads people. That? Uh, Kamala Harris. That was way this. after this vaccine but that was politicized by your boss. No, I mean but, I but take responsibility there. Thank you. Let's get some initial reactions from our rising panel. Emily Jashinsky is culture editor at The Federalist and Democratic strategist Nicole Brenner-Schmidt joins us now to discuss. Welcome, Emily, what are your initial thoughts? <laughs> well, actually, there's there's an interesting moment where jo Joy Behar um, is talking about how Donald Trump poisoned the well first. And this gets into a really important question about like who is throwing the first punch um, mm. in all of these silly wars. And I don't think that there's a scenario in which Donald Trump could have, under his administration, come out with a vaccine and you wouldn't have had that exact same reaction from Kamala Harris. I don't think that was conceivable because of the, the times that we existed. I mean, just about anything that Donald Trump said, whether it was political or not, it didn't matter. It got politicized. And that's not entirely uh, for, for no fault on his behalf. Of course, um, you know, he would, would politicize things needlessly. Mm -hmm. So, it, 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 of course. But the point is that we can't even have these conversations. And I remember uh, we talked about this on Rising over the summer last year, that we cannot actually have life and death conversations, matters of life and death, because we are so politicized that even when somebody does something right and says something correct, you can't have a proper conversation about it because it's inevitable. There is no chicken or egg in this situation. There is just the egg. <laughs> Yeah, I, I give uh, I give Alyssa a lot of credit for saying, you know, that she was in the administration. She doesn't stand by everything uh, they did. She's become kind of harshly critical of a lot of Trump world stuff. Uh, obviously, Alyssa, you know, by the way, if anybody was unaware, she has co-hosted uh, Rising in the past, which so is a friend of the show. But she was just she was pointing out that, yeah, there was a lot of skepticism, to say the least, about the vaccine when it was the Trump administration's project. Uh, you know, uh, Nicole, has that just kind of been totally forgotten or whitewashed by liberals and Democrats at this point? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, I think comparing what Kamala Harris said in those couple interviews before medical professionals had given their blessing to this vaccine and when we had already learned that at the beginning of COVID, Trump had more information than he let on, he had lied, the administration had misled us, is comparing apples and fire trucks. Certainly both sides over the past few years have politicized this a bit, but to compare what the White House did at the beginning of this COVID and the now vice president being hesitant before the medical professional said that we should take the vaccine is is a ridiculous comparison. Well, I don't know if I agree with that. I feel like a lot of 
reasonable hesitancy or uncertainty about well, how many boosters are needed or you know is the is the benefit of the vaccine really greater than the risk if we're talking about very young people and you know all that stuff that gets treated as total you know deranged lunacy uh, by by Democrats when there was plenty of hesitancy during a different political context. Is that not politicizing it? I don't think it gets treated as deranged lunacy right now. There's certainly a let's make sure we're doing what's medically appropriate. Let's make sure we're getting these vaccines to the folks who need them first. I'm the mother of a four and a half year old. I was diligent about looking into how the children's approval was going through. There's nothing wrong with being your own researcher for your family, but certainly Democrats are were expressing what was needed at the time, which was, are the medical professionals telling us? The the Democrats want to require that in schools. Go ahead. Well, well, here's the thing, Nicole. What strikes me about Kamala Harris's statement is that what she says is the kind of statement that you make when you want to create ambiguity where there is none. No president. Of of course, it wasn't going to be the case that what Donald Trump is in a laboratory tinkering with his toys and mass distributes a vaccine that isn't, you know, been vetted by the medical establishment and the CDC and Fauci and all of that. So it's just like it feels like to me when people say some climate scientists, you know, I I, I only want to I only want to support the Green New Deal if scientists think X, Y and Z. We know what the scientists say. We know what the outcome is going to be. So it really did feel to me in the moment like an attempt to sow a certain amount of discord for political purposes in the lead up to a general election. Do you disagree? I don't want to gloss over the fact that this is an administration who did not say, oh, no, don't take the horse tranquilizer. I mean, they they weren't coming out clear to tell people that some things that, that were out there were bad. They were not doing that. They were letting doctors uh, who had questionable medical credentials and past come out there with this kind of information. So at that point in September of 2020, that's still where we were. An administration that was not telling the American people, this is actually not going to fix COVID. And in fact, is very bad for you. So I think you can't forget the moment that we were in when she was making these statements. So that's what's so interesting to me about this clip and the reaction to it. I want to come to you in a second, Emily. But I am completely cognizant of and frustrated by the misinformation that's come out of the right. I've been inundated inundated with it. I have no confusion about it. But what was striking to me about this clip is how none of the panelists outside of Alyssa seem to be aware at all that there were any critiques from the right about the way the left, the way liberals have handled this issue. It is, I tell you, an incredibly freeing and liberating experience to be a leftist who's kind of decoupled from both of these kind of propagandistic mainstream news cycles because none of this stuff comes as a surprise. And what's really frustrating and scary to me is that so much of the discourse is fulminated in in complete and total ignorance. Emily, what's your take? That I couldn't have said it better possibly myself. And I similarly feel very liberated, you know, when you're decoupled (laughs) from the sort of official apparatuses of uh, party politics and uh, institutions. Yes, it is very liberating because you can stop and say, that cut of Joy Behar's face when Alyssa said <laughs> that, the, that the, the Kamala Harris, she's like, who said it? And Alyssa's like, Kamala Harris. And Joy Behar just looks as like, huh, you should know that. I mean, that was a yeah. huge moment. And conservative media was completely, completely right to cover it as they did. Because in September of 2020, it's important to not be talking. I actually think it makes it worse 
that things were uncertain at the time because she didn't know. She had no reason really to be casting doubt on a vaccine that, as Brianna points out, was not being developed in a laboratory by Donald Trump in a lab coat, uh, <laughs> but by actual medical professionals, pharmaceutical <laughs> Sorry, companies that create image. all of the other drugs we take. Um, and so I think it actually makes it worse that she said it um, at that time because she had she, all she had to go off of was the fact that it was being developed under the presidency of Donald Trump. And I guess on the left, that's enough. But I, I don't think it actually is when you consider the fact that it's in the hands of, of medical professionals and pharmaceutical companies. Right. Nicole, let me ask you this. Were you aware of those Kamala Harris clips? And do you think the average liberal um, voter, you know, view viewer was aware of those clips? I was aware, but in full confidence, I live in Washington, D.C. and mm -hmm. uh, live in a, a bubble of sorts where that was <laughs> sure. covered on. But they do a daily news talk show. Campaign. It was. It was a big moment. I, I do think she wasn't just casting doubt on the vaccine as a whole. I think she was saying, when the doctors who are developing it, when Dr. Fauci, when the CDC tells me to take it, then I will. I'm just not going to do it the moment Donald Trump tells me to. I'm going to do it when those medical professionals who are developing it are taking it. But again, we can pick apart the slight nuance of how she frames that sentence uh, all day long and, and none of us be right or wrong. Mm. Mm. Do you remember when Whoopi Goldberg just confidently asserted that Dr. Jill Biden was a, was a real doctor? Was a real doctor. That was <laughs> we got to cancel the view for misinformation. Oh boy! Uh, all right, Nicole and Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And we'll have more rising right after this. President Zelensky's relentless wall-to-wall -wall Western media campaign has successfully rallied much of the global north around Ukraine and against Russia. In the weeks since the invasion's start, that's been the case. But as resounding as Zelensky's pleas for aid and appeals to law and justice have been in the West, his message has been received considerably less well by those in the global south. That's according to a new piece by Dr. Trita Parsi. He writes, quote, Western demands that the global South make costly sacrifices by cutting off economic ties with Russia to uphold a rules-based order have begotten an allergic reaction. That order hasn't been rules-based. Instead, it has allowed the U.S. to violate international law with impunity. The West's messaging on Ukraine has taken its tone deafness to a whole new level, and it is unlikely to win over the support of countries that have often experienced the worst sides of the international order. Dr. Gita Parsi is executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a professor at Georgetown University. He joins us now to discuss. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. So could you, you know, walk us through this a, a little bit more, elaborate on, on, on the piece you wrote? You know, how, how is it that what has been uh, irresponsible about U.S. behavior that has helped foster this kind of, of distrust that you described? Well, so as I write in the piece, uh, Zelensky has been extremely effective uh, in rallying Western support. And Western support has been tremendously fast and strong compared to what anyone had expected before this crisis. But it is quite remarkable how little it has resonated with folks outside of the West, particularly the global South. And it's to a very large extent because of this threat. Now, obviously, these countries have their own dependencies of Russia's or vulnerabilities uh, to Russia. And as a result, they have a degree of hesitancy. And that's been what most of the media focus has been on. But I think there's a deeper reason for this as well, which is when we are saying that this war is about the future of the rules-based order, 
that's where we're losing most of the global south because the rules-based order for most of the world has been the United States being able to do whatever it wants outside of international law, whether it is to invade Iraq, whether it is to invade uh, Libya, or, or a whole set of different ways in which the United States actually has eroded the rules-based order itself, such as, for instance, sanctioning the, uh, the judges of the ICC, the International Criminal Court, which we now want to take Putin to and, and try for war crimes. So it, it creates a situation in which essentially we're asking some of these states to make pretty severe sacrifices in order for them to help uphold a rules-based order that gave the United States the ability to act outside of that order. Essentially, we're asking them to make sacrifices for American exceptionalism. And that's precisely why this message is not resonating with them. And I want to emphasize, it's not that they're sympathetic necessarily to Russia or that they are sorry, that they're sympathetic to Russia or that they're not sympathetic to the Ukrainians. I think by and large, they do view this as a war of aggression by Russia against Ukraine. There may be various reasons for it in which they perhaps do uh, put greater weight onto uh, the expansion of NATO than what many folks in the West would do. But overall, their view is that Russia is the aggressor. But they're not going to make these sacrifices in order for the United States to be able to continue to act uh, under the rubric of American exceptionalism. Can you give us uh, more of an idea, put a finer point on the kinds of commentary that are coming out of the Global South in this moment? Well, it, it's quite fascinating to see what they say. I think it was quite interesting, a piece in The Guardian uh, that quoted a gentleman who played a very important role in, in um, uh, both in Amnesty International, but also for a major African organization saying, you know, for decades, the West has been ravaging and, and colonizing uh, Africa, stealing its resources, etc. And then you had the Cold War in which a lot of the wars uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union were taking place in third countries, including in Africa. And now we're asked to allow that to happen again. Uh, and, and the comment was that just please don't bring your war to our shores. Mm -hmm. I thought it was quite fascinating that that is the perspective. They see this as a European conflict uh, about the European order, not about the global order. And as a result, they don't want to have any part of it. Yeah, Trita, how, how deep does this resentment run? It sounds like that's what you're talking about, that um, the rest of the world outside of the West is kind of looking at the West and saying, well, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, look at the United States you know, invading Iraq and now turning around and saying, oh, my gosh, uh, how horrible it is for this other country to do an invasion. Plus, like you mentioned, all the regime change efforts, uh, color revolutions, coups, I mean, you, sanctions, you name it. The United States has been very aggressive towards much of the world. I think right now, how many countries do we have sanctioned? It's like one out of every, you know, so many countries. is It's like a really high number that is experiencing U.S. sanctions right now. So how deep does this actually run this hot, this, has it, has it gotten to a point of a feeling of hostility or is it still at the, is it at the stage of, okay, you guys are hypocrites. We're not going to, we're not going to engage. Is it at the point where it's a step further and it's, okay, you guys are, uh, you know, we're, now we're feeling resentful, or is it now we're feeling hostile? You know, how, where I, are I, they at on this? I, I've not picked up any particular hostility, and I think you're quite right. The hypocrisy is there. It's annoying. It's always been there, so it's not necessarily something new. What's new is that we're asking them to make sacrifices in order for us to continue to be hypocritical. Mm. That's where mm. it's creating a problem. Because uh, that's essentially what it is. We're not saying anything about that the future international order will be a much better one than it was before. That's not what we're saying. We're essentially saying that the old order was fantastic and now we're asking the global south to make sacrifices to uphold it and they are not buying it. 
I also want to emphasize a lot of these states are close allies of the United States and they want to have a good relationship with the United States. They're not taking a side against the U.S. in that sense, but they are worried because with the U.S.'s tremendous power, which it has not used particularly responsibly, it has created a situation in which these countries, without hostility against the United States, nevertheless feel that they need to have some form of a counterbalance against the United States if they end up being on the wrong side of American adventurism and unilateralism. Mm -hmm. So as a result, by and large, they tend to view that a more multipolar world is a positive, not because they don't want to have any enmity with the United States, but because they want to have an option of being able to have a counterweight against the United States if they feel that that is necessary. Mm -hmm. This is also, incidentally, very true for some very close allies of the United States, who the United States, frankly, is protecting. But when they saw the swiftness in which the United States cut off Russia from the international financial system, they were on the one hand impressed, but on the other hand, very worried. If that is a power the United States has at its disposal, mindful of the fact that we have not been particularly responsible for the last two or three decades, we shouldn't be surprised that even friends are worried about how we will use that power. Yeah. Dr. Parsi, thank you so much for joining with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Stick around for more Rising in just a minute. Last week, I did one of my radars on what I called the smearing of the Koch network, Charles Koch's charitable network, by some on the left who accused the Kochs of rooting for a Russian victory with their opposition to sanctions and some other skepticism of the more hawkish consensus on how we should handle Ukraine-Russia. Progressive journalist Judd Legum went after Stand Together, which is uh, the charitable organization founded by Charles Koch that gives money to libertarian groups and causes. And full disclosure, I work for Reason Magazine, which has received support from Stand Together from the Koch Network. So my radar sparked on Twitter a back and forth with Judd, and we decided to invite him on to hash it out. And he's with us now. Thanks for joining us, Judd. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, uh, this is great. So, you know, I'll turn it over to you. But what I, I think objected to most of all in, in how you characterized this statement that the, the so the Kochs had sent this, uh, Stand Together sent this email, you know, are kind of articulating their position on what's happening on Russia, Ukraine. And you uh, characterized it as them rooting for a partial Russian victory, uh, when, you know, based on my reading of the statement, they were saying, look, we want to come to a diplomatic resolution in, in all reality that will involve probably Russia getting something they want and Ukraine getting something they want. That's a view that I have. That's a view probably that most of our viewers have and our viewers not being particularly you know, fans of the Cokes. That's probably a, a view that most of our left-leaning viewers have. So can you uh, talk about, you know, why you ca characterize that as a, as a partial Russian victory? Yeah, honestly, Ravi, I'm somewhat mystified uh, by this criticism uh, because I didn't say that the Koch network was rooting for a Russian victory. But what I did, based on an email that I obtained that was sent uh, to the entire staff of the Stand Together uh, organization, was that... Uh, the, the head of their foreign policy uh, program, um, Dan Caldwell, uh, said that the United States should support and push for a diplomatic solution, which there's not so much there's not so much surprising there. Um, but also, he said that when pursuing that, there should be an understanding that neither side uh, will receive a total victory. Um, you then, in your piece, 
you, you describe that as a smear. You describe that as dishonest. You describe that as unfair, a hatchet job. I could go on. There was a lot of words used. But in your own piece, and I'll just read it here because I haven't memorized your piece, uh, is that it says, it is perfectly reasonable to concede that in order to end all death and destruction, Putin will have to emerge from the conflict as something short of a complete and total loser. So the difference between, I don't really understand the difference between that and understanding that what the Koch group is pushing for is a partial Russian victory. Now, you may agree with that. You may say that's what they need to be doing because there's so much death and destruction. And I understand that. Uh, but I don't think it's a smear for me to uncover an email, publish the relevant excerpts, and then put it out there. It was a smear because you made it sound nefarious when it is actually the view that, like, most people, except for maybe your most militant neoconservatives or something, have about how this outcome will come to an end. So you are making it sound like they are uniquely and maliciously pro-Russia or pro-Putin when actually they just put out a statement that is completely benign. If this was a statement from any, any... any person, any like person within a large swath of the political spectrum, no one would bat an eyelash at it because it was just an articulate. It was a standard articulation of the principles at stake. But you made it sound like, aha, the Koch network, they are different. They're really have this kind of pro-Russian bent is how you made well, it sound in your characterization. Well, I think what you're talking about, Robbie, is how you felt. You felt that when I accurate we, we both agree what they're pushing for you just didn't like the act the idea that it felt you felt that i was implying that it was nefarious that is not a smear that is not a hatchet job well, that is accurate reporting and you didn't approve of the characterization and one thing that i'm curious of is why is it that you are the person who is out front defending an email that was written by Dan Caldwell, who writes for Stand Together. I asked Dan Caldwell prior to publishing anything, and I said, hey, I'm, I've gotten this email. You've said a number of things. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And because these, not just from you, but from other people um, in sort of the broader Stand Together grantee community continue to attack this piece, I asked Dan Caldwell again yesterday. I want to give you another opportunity. If I got anything wrong, just let me know. And he's not saying anything. I mean, who is this Dan Caldwell person? Why can't he just defend himself? Why do you, uh, Robbie Soden, why do you, why are you the person who needs to do this? I, I'm defending it because I think your characterization was unfair. And I agree. I agree with the policy that in that e- the email, that statement, I agree with like every word of it. Again, probably most of our viewers do, and not because they're like Coke loyal libertarians. Well, Brianna who probably cares? agrees with yeah, it. Ryan said he agreed with it. So it. Who cares? Go ahead. But who cares if you agree with it? Just because you agree with it doesn't mean that me reporting it is a smear. There is a difference between you agreeing with a statement and me smearing someone or making a hatchet job. The other question that you don't address in your piece, but I think is very important for people to know is. Do you think it is appropriate for a nonprofit organization to be used to support the policies of a for-profit company that is run by the same person who runs the nonprofit? Because that is a part of the email 
you accused me of selectively quoting the email. I've now published the entire email because I don't think it makes any difference whatsoever, the portions of the email that were included or not included. But do you believe it is appropriate for someone to use a nonprofit in that way? Because you don't, you never discussed the part of the email where the head of Charles Koch's nonprofit encourages everyone at that nonprofit to read the statement put out the same day by Koch Industries explaining why they are remaining in I think Russia. it matters what the actual statement is. And because the statement itself is accepted, like what they are saying it's, it's in the statement. It's pretty benign. Yeah, Judd, I just want to ask you, if we could just center this back on the statement for those who haven't, like myself, I apologize, been following the back and forth on Twitter. It, it, it really seems to come down to how you perceive the value or the tenor of the statement about about you know the idea that the outcome of this is going to result the, the only way this conflict is going to be resolved is if Russia is in some ways in some ways not coming off as a total loser that seems pretty benign I don't know if you've heard about the aphorism that you know if it's it's not a compromise unless both sides feel like they've given up something and similarly it's not a compromise not a good compromise or a settlement unless both sides feel like they have won something isn't that just the nature of conflict resolution that of course things aren't going to come to a conclusion unless both sides feel in some way satisfied or unless one side is able to completely demolish the other side in a way that is going to result in an enormous cost of uh, a life yeah, and I'm happy to answer that, but I, I just want to note that Robbie did not answer the question. He did not say whether it was appropriate for a nonprofit network to support the activities. I think of it. A it I think it matters what, like, if if it's an if it's if the sentiment being expressed is bad or bad policy or bad for people, then it's inappropriate. But because the statement that Stand Together made and the statement that. Uh, Coke Industries made is just a perfectly benign, you know what, we, we'd like to this conflict to come to a peaceful resolution. We are skeptical of some of the sanctions. They might harm the people of Russia more than they are benefiting this war effort. An opinion that libertarians, many progressives, we had Ilhan Omar on the show. She said the same exact thing. It's not because she's paid by the Cokes to say it. <laughs> That is fine. That sentiment is fine. So it is not inappropriate okay. for them to say well, it. That I is my say, standpoint. Say, because my I agree view, with it and think most people agree from, with it, and it's correct. From my point of view and from the point of view of the law, it is inappropriate for a nonprofit network to be deployed for the benefit of a for-profit corporation. It's not you for the benefit of a for-profit corporation. It's for the benefit of like global peace. I want to address Bree's question. Um, which is, I agree, of course, when you are coming with a diplomatic resolution, one side, both sides will probably need to give up something. Mm -hmm. But I think you need to look at the email from the Stand Together Network in total, where prior to, or I'm not sure the exact order, but in addition to pushing for a diplomatic resolution, he also is essentially expressing extreme skepticism over all types of sanctions, except for sanctions directly targeted at Russian leadership and really opposing the sanctions regime that's in place right now, which you keep on mentioning all your positions are very popular. The sanctions that are in place are very popular among the public. So that's not a that's not a position that's widely held. Absolutely. But there's, there is skepticism in, among in, Progressives, there's a, a tradition of non-interventionism that is also skeptical of these sanctions. But go ahead. When you take those things together, 
how are you supposed to come to a reasonable resolution if you remove the pressure of most economic sanctions? Well, the argument that that... really that is really the issue. It's the combination. It's removing these broad these broad based economic sanctions. It's keeping for profit companies operating in Russia and then pushing for a diplomatic resolution from a position of extreme weakness. And that is the position that the Stand Together Network holds. You may agree with that position. But 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 because I I have this email and reported it does not make me a smear artist or a hatchet job or lazy or all the other names that I'm called by you and other people who totally coincidentally, and I don't think this has anything to do with your views, also work for people who receive millions of dollars from the Stand Together Network. Well, as someone who is an independent journalist, a self-employed podcaster, I I would just say that the argument about the sanctions tends to be about, at least from a leftist perspective, the fact that targeted sanctions to oligarchs are effective in a way that the broad generalized sanctions that hurt the people of Russia are not. The same way you could say, well, we could end any conflict by nuking the heck out of a country. There's an an understanding that it is inappropriate and unethical to to, uh, have a maximalist approach that hurts people who are not responsible for a conflict. So to say that that kind of an orientation is necessarily ideological beyond it just being a a, a basic kind of humanitarian position, I think is a little bit what is suspect in this exchange. It's not something that at all would necessarily be driven by a fidelity to Coke brother interest. Rather, it's a very, very broad-based humanitarian response that's been applied in a lot of other contexts. And there's a generalized on the left distaste for heavy, broad sanctions that disproportionately affect the people of a country as opposed to its leadership. I, I completely appreciate that point. I think it's a very valid point. And I think it's important to recognize that in this situation, there are no good solutions Uh, vis-a-vis sanctions that don't hurt people. Because the issue is that Putin and the regime is using the proceeds from the Russian economy to enact and target civilians in Ukraine. So yes, it does, sanctions can hurt ordinary Russians and that should not be happening. But at the same time, there needs to be some effort to try to protect the Ukrainian people as well, who are suffering from the bombing, the shelling of their cities. Um, And that that operation is being funded by money that is coming into the Russian economy. So to the extent that like international paper has a a, uh, contracts with the Russian government to make paper product from their forest, that money's coming into the Russian government and it's being used to then attack the people of Ukraine. So I I agree, we need to figure out the best way to try to uh, reduce human harm, but it's not just, I I don't think by removing the sanctions, you are then saying, okay, now we're sure that there's less harm than you were when the sanctions were in place. Absolutely. Look, I have mixed feelings about the sanctions as well. It sounds like you do. And so does Stand Together in the statement that they put out. So if we're all like, yeah, this is a hard call. Here are the downsides of this. What should be done? Okay, then like, what was the news element of this? So that's that's the, I guess, final question to you. So and and my 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 criticism being that it seems like you tie tried to use the whole kind of Russia, Putin, 
uh, paranoia that is popular in some kind of mainstream liberal circles to I- impute that to what the Kochs were doing when really what they were doing was saying what we all kind of think, which is that, well, there are serious downsides to these sanctions and we would like to have peace as soon as possible. I think the news is Coke Industries is one of hundreds of American companies have pulled out of Russia. Coke Industries is one of a handful of companies that has remained full operations in Russia. And as I previously reported, uh, a, a wide array of groups uh, that are funded by the Koch network are pushing against economic sanctions and policies that would support uh, the Koch industry's position. This is an email that not only lays that out, that not only lays out their position against most economic sanctions and pushing for instead this this diplomatic solution, but then explicitly links this to the Coke industry statement that was released the same day. Maybe that's not news. You know, maybe you're not interested in that, but I I was interested in it and that's why I put it out. And, you know, on my website today, I have the full email. People can read it themselves and they can they can draw their own own conclusions. I don't want to mislead anyone, certainly, about what they're saying. I think it speaks for itself. I think people are welcome to agree or disagree with the contents of the email. I think if the argument is that the Koch brother, the, the Koch industry stand to profit from a certain political approach, and that one should keep that in mind as you assess whether or not they're advocating for a certain political approach in good faith, I think that's perfectly legitimate. I do, though, think that raising the specter of people being Putin's puppet and kind of in the, in, the, in the bag ideologically for Putin or somehow rooting for autocracy because of X, Y, and Z, because of it taking up a certain political approach. That is perhaps where the line was crossed with Robbie. I don't mean to speak for you, but well, I really I never, appreciate I, you. I agree. Yeah, I agree that that would be over the line. But I just to be clear, I've never have said that the Koch brothers are Putin's puppet or engaged in that kind of rhetoric. Um, and I and I agree with you that that would be inappropriate. I think it would be news if they had a long history of like supporting sanctions and then opposed them in this one case because they have a factory in Russia or something. But the truth is that they are like very ideologically committed to a position that I think is correct, and they give money to organizations to promote that view, a, a non-interventionist, you know, non-punitive uh, economically sanctions kind of regime. So it's just not give- surprising that they have. Well, but they also give money, Robbie, as you know, to and millions of dollars to some of the most interventionist members of Congress and other political figures that we have. People who are advocating not only a extremely interventionist um, position in this in this conflict, but in many other conflicts. So the idea that all of their um, spending is in all the the Coke industries and Charles Koch's spending is in line with what he believes ideologically. Again, I don't speak for them. I know they have given money to political candidates that have not uh, then supported the you know values they claim to profess, and I think that's something they're aware of. That's the uh, that's a, a, a an issue that you know everyone who gives money to candidates runs into. Uh, because it's a, uh, not a, sure. right, wouldn't be, not a good use of my millions if I had them to give them to, uh, to candidates who are going to disappoint me. But uh, anyway, Judd, we, uh, we really appreciate you joining us. we got to go. Thanks so much for being willing to have this conversation. Thanks for having me on. More Rising after this. Kim, what's on your radar? 
Well, you know, I try to bring you news that you don't see much in the mainstream, and this was lightly mentioned yesterday, wasn't heavily covered, so... I want to tell you what Putin said yesterday about the war in Ukraine. Um, you know how the mainstream news just doesn't report much on the Russian perspective of the war. And the reason they do that is because they're afraid you're going to, I guess, hear it and then maybe agree with it. So they seem to do that a lot, right? Um, but, you know, you may agree, you may not agree. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just going to tell you what Putin said so you know about it. Now, yesterday, Putin and Belarusian President Lukashenko met at the Vostochny Cosmodrome in eastern Russia, way over on the other side of Russia, right over by North Korea. Now, why all the way over there? Because yesterday was Cosmonautics Day, the day Russia annually celebrates the first manned mission to space. The two nations' leaders did talk a lot about space, with Putin even saying he's planning to resume his moon exploration missions despite heavy Western sanctions. So it looks like the space race is back on. Who's excited for this? The Cold War is back and will once again be wasting billions of dollars racing the Russians to the moon. Yay! <laughs> but the meat of the meeting happened when the conversation turned to Ukraine. First things first, Lukashenko blamed the Bucha massacre on the British. Here he is saying, today we discussed in detail their psychological operation, which was carried out by the British. If you need addresses, passwords, car numbers, car brands on which they arrived in Bucha and how they did it, FSB of the Russian Federation can provide this information. If not, we could help with that. If Russia had delayed this military operation even a little bit, a crushing blow was being prepared on the territory of Russia on neighboring areas. That was possible. We have clearly seen it today. So the Belarusians say they were the ones to investigate this, and then they turned their findings over to the Russians, which is why they say the Russians can provide this information. And if not, then you can get it from us. So there you have it. I feel like we've now heard everyone point the finger at everyone else for the atrocities in Bucha. Uh, so there it goes. Now, when it comes to negotiations, Putin says they've hit a dead end and that Ukraine has reneged back on the terms that they tentatively agreed to in Istanbul. Kiev has agreed to being a neutral state and giving up NATO ambitions. We've all heard this, but they're also asking for Western nations to give them security guarantees that they say, quote, would be stronger than NATO's Article 5. So I guess technically they wouldn't be in NATO, which is what Russia asked for, but I doubt this is what Russia envisioned in its stead. Kiev is also now taking a hard line on Crimea and the Donbass. Russia wants Crimea to be declared Russian and the Donbass to be declared independent. And in Istanbul, Kiev seemed to give some wiggle room on the topics, but now they've taken them off the table. Even more bothersome to Russia, Kiev is refusing to remove Crimea and the Donbass from the security guarantees that they're asking for. So this is a deal breaker for Russia. Russia currently occupies these territories and fights against Ukraine for them. So if Western NATO nations have a security pact, not NATO, but a, secure, a security pact with Ukraine to defend them against Russia, including in these areas, well, that means war. So of course, Russia is not going to agree to this. And quite frankly, neither is the West. So now the negotiations are at a stalemate. Now, because the two can't come to an agreement, Putin said, quote, our task is to fulfill and achieve all the goals set, minimizing losses, and we will act rhythmically, calmly, according to the plan originally proposed by the general staff. Putin also denied that there was ever a goal of capturing all of Ukraine or even Kiev. He instead stated, our actions in certain regions of Ukraine were just related to containing enemy forces, destroying military infrastructure, 
creating conditions for a more active operation in Donbass. And I will mention that there have been several military um, experts that have made the rounds on the mainstream news. And actually, they have also said something similar. You hear a lot of journalists saying, you know, oh, they're backing down from Kiev. Uh, they're they're no longer, you know, they got pushed out. So this was a, a win or a success for Ukraine. And you'll see these military officers on the TV saying, well, I don't think Russia has really changed their overall goal. They've just shifted where they're putting the troops. So that's just kind of interesting to know. He also addressed how long it's taking to accomplish his goals. He said it's possible to do it faster, but they'd have to ramp up the intensity of hostilities and the intensity of hostilities is related to losses, which they're trying to mitigate. So another big takeaway from the conference was Putin saying the sanctions were not hurting Russia, that they instead are hurting the West. I think we can all see that. He said the West needs to stop the economic war with Russia or there will be serious food shortages. Putin also said, though it might sound strange right now, but Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine are like brothers. He said, I have always said that we are the same people, Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. What is happening in Ukraine is a tragedy, no doubt, but as Lukashenko correctly said, they left us no choice. Finally, in the conference, Putin denied the war was going poorly for Russia, and instead he thinks the United States is fighting a proxy war with Russia to the last Ukrainian. And maybe there's something to that. Biden has now called the war in Ukraine a genocide. He did finally say that yesterday. I know the news was kind of trying to bait him into it. So he did. He labeled it one. Now, um, he also is committing another $750 million in military aid. Military aid. That's not humanitarian. $750 in military aid. And today, eight of the top U.S. defense contractors will be meeting with the Department of Defense to talk about what more they can do to beef up Ukraine's ammo. So that is where we're at with this. It looks like, um, I mean, I, I think we were all hoping that the peace talks that were going on in Istanbul would actually come to some sort of fruition and we would actually see some peace in Ukraine, that the Russians would be satisfied with whatever negotiation and, and back out of the country. But Ukraine, uh, you know, actually Russia has not changed their demands from day one, quite honestly. They've asked for the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and Ukraine is seeming to, you know, decide whether or not they want to do it. So, you know, in, in Istanbul, they kind of said, yeah, OK, we'll start to make some concessions on this. They've said we won't join NATO. Uh, they've said, OK, we can maybe negotiate Crimea, the status of Crimea over a 15 year period. But now, I, I mean, when they say we're not going to join NATO, but we want the exact actually we want bigger, more stronger security um, you know, promises from NATO countries than NATO itself. And then when they say, and we're not willing to even negotiate on Crimea and Donbass, and remember, Crimea and Donbass have not been under Ukrainian control for the last eight years. This is something, Crimea has been under Russian control. The people overwhelmingly voted that they want to be with Russia. They have no interest of going back to Ukraine. Um, and the Donbass has been, these are Ukrainians fighting Ukrainians in a civil war for the right. last eight years, wanting their independence. Why is Ukraine still holding on? You know, it, it just leads us to a lot of questions on, is there really a desire to end this war or are there other forces wanting to keep this, this war going? Yeah, it sounds like the U.S. should say, look, you know, we, we were happy to send you uh, weapons when you were being invaded and you needed to defend yourselves, but it was in order to reach a peace. And, you know, this deal sounds close to what, kind of most people think needs to be the reality, right? No, no NATO for, for 
Ukraine and right. realistically some, you know, the Crimea and then maybe independence for the Donbas and then and the invasion ends. And maybe we should say, look, you can reject that if you want, but you you cannot continue to count on us, apply, us supplying the weapons and and uh, putting this amount of pressure on Russia because we don't want to do it to the left. And if that is if, if, if you're right, that if the U.S. government is like, no, 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 we're going to keep keep committing they, that does fit into a last Ukrainian kind of mentality that is so destructive. Yeah, there's been this real presumption that sending arms to Ukraine, funding a war effort, prolonging the war is what's ultimately in the best interest of Ukrainian citizens and what's going to save lives. You hear people, you know, flying Ukrainian flags and I think having really sincere sympathies for the Ukrainian people, mm -hmm. really buying into the idea that the way to help them is exclusively through supporting them milit militarily with the presumption that doing so, I think, is going to result in them winning. And I think that presu presumption comes from an unwillingness to grapple with the reality that these things, every, every war ends through di diplomacy. The question is how long the fighting persists until then and whether or not the fighting brings it to a, a quicker close or not. And that when you're dealing with a superpower like Russia and there are all of these implications of the West being involved in, you know, Article 5 being triggered and all of these things, it is just really not clear and never has been from the jump that arming Ukraine was going to make this less of a humanitarian crisis for Ukrainians, and I think people got in that orientation in part because they were fundamentally unwilling, and I've talked about this on my show, especially in the first few weeks of the crisis, fundamentally unwilling to accept any outcome other than Russia's complete humiliation, right. domination, right. no concessions right. at all on the part of Ukraine, and that just wasn't realistic. But I guess just to just to play you know devil's advocate, just for the sake of uh, putting forth a different view, if. Uh, Putin, you know, so you just relayed, and I think it's helpful, right, to hear what he's actually saying, but he just said things that I don't think are true. I don't think the British are responsible for the atrocities in Bukha. So if he is willing to lie about what's going on, does that maybe make people rationally say, well, he's not going to keep a deal then? I don't know. How can we trust him to actually abide by this deal if he's just actively misleading his people about right. you know, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, well, that's what they well, say about America and NATO expansion. Well, right. fair enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sure. I mean, they sure. should at least try. I mean, the fact is the Ukrainians aren't even trying on this. And this is what is, it, it is, uh, you know, look, do they have the right to defend their country? Absolutely. No one's saying they don't have that right. I've never made that claim that, oh, they don't have the right to do it. Of course they have the right to do it. The question is, is it, it's not about, you know, the, the moral, the morality of it. It's about the mm -hmm. realism of it, right? I mean, you're going up against the superpower. They are not putting everything into this. That is very clear. Um, they could hobble Ukraine completely. I mean, they could level if I mean, they could nuke the country if they wanted to, and they're not going that far, thank goodness, at this point. Um, but you know, I think the question of what is winning, you know, what is what does winning hmm. look like? Does that look like leveled cities and thousands of civilians dead? I mean, what is what what outcome is winning for Ukraine? Uh, and I think what people have in their mind is, well, the, the outcome of winning would be Russia doesn't take Ukraine. But Russia never, ever has said they were going to take Ukraine. That was a that was something that got spun in Western media. I was watching even MSNBC. I mean, even even there, they brought in a military expert, you know, somebody's in the military. And he even said he's like when they were saying, you know, now it looks like Russia's no longer going to be taking Ukraine. Like, what do you think of this? And he's like, well, no, that was never, you know, even even their own experts are saying, well, that was never even really the, the, the plan. So, yes, of course, that would be a win for Ukraine. I guess we could we could say 
they're not going to take your country. That's a good thing. Of course, Ukraine should have their independence. I don't think anyone really, if you look through the history of that country, disputes that they should have their independence. But at what cost, you know, do you hold on Mm. to Donbass and Crimea? Two areas that don't even Mm. really want to be with Ukraine. At what cost? And the thing is, Robbie, to your point, yes, of course, the the U.S. should say, we're not going to be funding you anymore. We're not going to send you weapons. You know, you need to have a good faith negotiation. But guess what? They're not. And it makes me question if behind the scenes, we're egging them on. And it is what Russia's saying, that we are egging them on and and getting them to, and goading them to fight to the last Ukrainian because we're instead having now milit- now the top eight military industrial complex guys are showing up at the Department of Defense and they're going to talk about what more they can do to, to weaponize Ukraine. And now this talk, they're not going to be talking about just defense weapons. You know, now they're moving on to maybe some offensive weapons as well that's going to be in the discussion. Whether or not they do it is another question. But, you know, we're not backing down on this. We're saying let's let's keep amping them up. Let's keep giving them more. It's a proxy war. We know how those ends. It's and it's devastating. And I, you know, many of us would like to not see that happen to the Ukrainian people or anywhere else in the world for that matter. All right. Thank you, Kim. We'll be back with more rising after this. CNN Plus, the major network streaming service, got off to a sluggish start, barely attracting 10,000 daily users since it aired two weeks ago. The lackluster launch puts the future of the subscriber-based platform in peril. Massive cuts could be on the way. CNN Plus planned on pouring $1 billion into the new venture over the next four years, but so far only a fraction of that, about $300 million, has been spent. We also know the network has halted hiring for now. The fate of CNN Plus remains to be seen, but we'll see what the incoming boss, Chris Light, will do to lift or cut the service. Meanwhile, former Fox News anchor Chris Wallace seems to be having a meltdown over the news. John Nicosia of News Cycle Media is reporting that Chris Wallace is having daily breakdowns over the miserable launch of CNN Plus. He wants a CNN show or is threatening to walk. He's having staffers count how many times a day his promo is playing, which sounds very sad. Uh, sad decision, obviously, to go from you know Fox News and have however many millions of of, uh, of viewers he has on a on a weekly basis, presumably, to go to this, which literally no one is watching. And to I guess to CNN's point, like I don't know what else they're supposed to do. Obviously, this was going to be a fraught proposition to get their, just like it would be for any of the cable networks, to get their elderly TV viewers to figure out how to get a subscription, <laughs> right. you know, streaming service. Um, that's that's young people do that. But young people are not watching CNN or Fox or MSNBC. Right. The average age of the of the audience is in the upper 60s, I believe. So all of these networks are going to have problems down the road, but CNN's having them now, and this this was not an answer to that problem. Yeah, I guess maybe the idea is that they understand that increasingly uh, millennials and Gen Zs are cutting the cable cord, and so they're positioning themselves to have a platform where people can access their videos on their phones. But I don't really see what this is doing that the YouTube posts and things like that are doing. They're already getting boosted by the algorithm. The, the, those channels are getting um, preferential support on YouTube and the generalized stations. So the real question is, who do they think is going to pay for more of content that already exists in such volume? 
for free, especially when they're so disrespectful to the politics of younger generations. There are never, I will say this admittedly as a leftist, never any genuine progressives brought onto these shows. They bring on, you know, Van Jones to somehow be the mouthpiece for what the youth are talking about today. It's laughable. <laughs> right. And I can see it working if they try to change the content in some ways. But taking the same old players and putting them behind a digital desk, I just don't get it. Yeah, and, and then asking people to pay for it. I mean, look, CNN has dismal numbers as it is. Um, so why they thought that people would suddenly want to pay for content that they could get for free that they're not even really watching is, you know, it's, it's I mean, yeah, I interesting logic, but even more interesting that they decided to spend all the money on it. Now, you know, they do have some things on this platform that people might be interested in, but I'm not sure if they would pay a monthly subscription to to access it. Like, for example, they're putting all of Anthony Bourdain's stuff on the CNN Plus platform. Mm. Um, they have like RGB, uh, I mean, RBG. Is that right? RBG, I always get the acronym <laughs> wrong, right? RBG. They have um, that, you know, the movie on the platform. Mm. So they have some of their original content that they've placed on it. So it's not just getting, you know, more Anderson Cooper than you couldn't get earlier, you know, in the evening. You, you just couldn't get enough Anderson. So you got to go to CNN Plus and get more. They are adding these other shows, other content, but you know, people, you 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 know what CNN is going to say to you. Hmm. I mean, you, if you want to watch Anthony Bourdain, I believe you could even maybe purchase those if you really were into it, or you watch rerun somewhere. I don't know how that would work, but you know, so it just seems a monthly subscription seems a bit much for think, that kind of content. Yeah, I think the best defense you could make of this is that, look, this is the future. They're going to have to be. They're going to have to have this eventually. So I guess why not build it out now and then eventually well, hope, right? But they they have digital. They have. I mean, that's how I watch. I don't. I don't have cable mm. television. You know. So I. I mean, everybody, I watch on cable you know, like an old person. I mean, although I I watch far less than I used to. I used to just have the TV on all night and flip back just to not because I'm a psychopath. Yeah, that's No, not because I enjoy it. I want to know what we, you know, what's being discussed in Fair the media enough. so I can criticize and react to it. But even that yeah. is too much of an ask now. I don't want to, I don't, yeah, so don't want to have that on. They would have been better off yeah. spending their money just buying Wordle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a, Seriously. You're, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean, this was something a little different. They were asking people to pay for it. And I, and what they were seeing was that it was working well for Fox. So Fox has their Fox they Nation. Have their, is it Fox Nation. Right. And that does fairly well. But that's because when you look at who Fox put on Fox Nation, I believe they have like Tommy Laren on there. Tucker mm -hmm. has his Tucker Carlson today. You know, they have people that younger generations actually want to watch. Um, on there and Fox actually has done a better job of reaching out to younger generations. In fact, more young Democrats watch Fox News, I believe Tucker Carlson, than, than they do CNN or MSNBC. So they've, you know, maybe they looked at that and they said, okay, there's a subscription base. Um, it's working for Fox Nation, so it's gonna work for CNN. It's not working at right. all. It's Although dismal. Fox Nation, again, to be fair, Fox Nation has had a lot, it's been on for a while, right? They've had time to figure it out. I, mm -hmm. I bet a lot of their early early programming was similar to this extra with Anderson, or like some kind of random Anderson Coomer, how's your life kind of thing. Um, I, I know they had that going on with some of their early Fox Nation hosts, and then eventually they figured it out, and they know what people want, and, you know, theoretically, CNN Plus could eventually figure that out, too. Um, they haven't at this juncture, but I don't know that Fox Nation had it figured out 
at this juncture yeah, either. CNN, well, they're just going to have a difficult time doing it only because they're not willing to deviate from any narrative whatsoever other than the one that they spout out. And at least Fox News, they might not like Tucker or, or Laura Ingram behind the scenes, <laughs> you know, and the things that they say, but uh, they at least allow them to say it. And that mm-hmm. is something, you know, they have a different viewpoint than even the people that are uh, even coming on the air before them and after them. So, so know, not a, everybody. It is a way wider uh, range of viewpoints yeah, dis- discussed on the Fox right. News evening lineup than there is on CNN, which is a pretty damning statement. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, fascinating. Ten thousand. Not a good. Not a good number. We uh, <laughs> we get more viewers than that on like <laughs> even our less well performing like in individual hour, videos, right? right? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Well. Tomorrow on Rising, Will Jawando and Malika Abdul join us for our Rising panel. We'll also tell you what's on our radar. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe so that you never miss one of our amazing, awesome shows. Um, Also, check us out on podcast. You know where to find us. Anywhere you listen to podcasts is where you can get us. So be sure to subscribe and share to that as well. And we will see you guys tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.